All right, let's continue to worship, shall we? Without further ado, by turning in our Bibles to John chapter 1. And if you need a copy of God's Word, the ushers would be happy to get one into your hands. John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 28 this morning. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. Of course, you'll find the Gospel of John about three-quarters of the way through your Bible, the fourth account of the life of Christ in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're just getting started in our study of the Gospel of John under a new theme from chapter 20 that we discovered last week. I trust that the Lord has reminded you a few times of that, a new theme, that you may believe, that you may believe, believe and keep believing. That's why John wrote the entire thing, the entire gospel that we have in our hands, that we may believe in Jesus and live. I so love the graphic that our graphics department designed in that respect, that you may believe, that you may live. It's a both and, of course. I trust that the Lord will use that over and over as you see that both on Sundays and throughout the week, maybe with your theme sticker. And having already covered the first 18 verses of chapter 1, we pick it up today in verse 19, where John, here's what's going on here, John, the Apostle John, calls his first witness, if you will, if you want to think courtroom a little bit, he calls his first witness to support his contention in verses 1 to 18 that Jesus is God in the flesh, calls his first witness. He calls John the Baptist to the stand. At least, that's what the other gospel writers call him. John the Apostle here in his gospel just calls him John, which might be one of the reasons why John the Apostle, the author, never refers to himself as John except in the title. Maybe it's because he didn't want to make it even more confusing than it already was. He just calls him John. He's referring to John the Baptist. The point being, he's an example worth following. That's the point here, at least in these first verses here of John being on the witness stand in 19 to 28. He's an example worth following. He's a witness worth imitating. He's, oh, how about an influencer actually worth our attention? That. You follow along with me, verses 19 to 23 to start with. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Let's stop there for a second. The Jews sent priests and Levites. The Jews is a label that John uses some 68 times in his gospel, most of them referring to those who opposed Jesus, those who opposed Jesus. It's not a racial slur of any sort referring to all Jews, but rather it's a label for those who were skeptical about Jesus and those who were hostile, those who were opposed to Jesus, the Jews. That's how he refers to those who are opposed, skeptical, hostile toward the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews, the Jews. Not all Jews, just those who were skeptical and hostile. Like, for instance, the priests and Levites in this verse. You see it? This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. That is, men 
who normally oversaw the worship and sacrifices in the temple at Jerusalem. But here, instead of doing that, what they normally did, here they were sent by their leaders to basically be private investigators, the original PIs. Back in the day, I watched Magnum PI. My parents used to like that show, and for the longest time, I had no idea what PI stood for. Private investigator. John was referring to the originals here. The original private investigators, if you will. These priests and Levites sent from the mucky mucks in Jerusalem, probably the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to figure out just who in the world John the Baptist really is. Who are you? Who are you? You can envision them just sending them on their way. Like, go and figure it out and don't come back until you know. Who is this guy? Who is this guy that all the crowds are going to? Who is this guy that all the leaders, secular leaders included, are are wanting an audience with? Who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. It's kind of an odd thing for us to read that. Why wouldn't you just say it once and be done with it? It's because it's intended to be a very emphatic response. It's intended to be a very dogmatic response. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed Here it is, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Stop there. The primary purpose of this initial interaction is to remove any confusion. This is the the primary purpose. Verses 19 to 28 here, it's to remove any confusion or question as to who John the Baptist is versus who Jesus is. It's the primary purpose. Remove any confusion in any of their hearts and minds as John was writing late in the first century, most likely from Ephesus, the heart of the Roman Empire that way. And he's wanting to remove any confusion or question between the two. The Apostle John didn't want there to be any doubt. And in the process, secondarily, in the process of making that distinction, we find some characteristics worth imitating. An example worth following. I trust that the Lord has brought you in this morning with a heart ready to receive and a life ready to be changed if necessary. It starts with seeing him for who he was. See John, see who John was. See who John was. That's the first step in following him as a worthy example See the characteristics that describe him, some of which are found here in this passage, in this gospel, and some of which are found in the other gospels, like the fact that he was a significant prophet. Really quickly here, five characteristics to see about John, to see him for who he was. He was a significant prophet, a significant one. 
Someone who spoke God's very words on God's behalf. I would say that's significant. He didn't just repeat God's words as, as we do, as I do, as you do in the course of your conversation where you recount the words of God that are found in the scriptures that the prophets recorded. No, no, no. These prophets were speaking the very words of God. They were his very mouthpiece, speaking his words on his behalf in real time when they originally spoke. Certainly significant. But there were other prophets who did that, and so that doesn't necessarily distinguish John from them as being significant. What does distinguish him was that he was the first one to do so in over 400 years. John the Baptist, he was the first prophet to speak God's words on God's behalf in over 400 years. In fact, he was not only the first to do so in 400 years, he was the last. He was significant in that he was the last of the uh, Old Testament prophets. Pretty significant. As was the fact that his birth was foretold by an angel. And not just any birth, but a miraculous one. Because his mom was barren and elderly. Elizabeth, as we find in the first chapter of Luke. Plus, his dad, Zechariah, prophesied that he would actually, his son, John the Baptist, would actually prepare the way for Jesus. Oh, they didn't know Jesus by name at that point, at his birth. But, oh, maybe I correct myself on that. They probably heard from Mary and Joseph that the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. We know the interaction between Mary and Elizabeth when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. And so, so maybe they would have known. In any case, in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, prophesied that he would actually prepare the way for the Messiah. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist would immediately precede Jesus who would offer salvation to those who believe, his people. Significant is an understatement. Second, he was a great man. He was a great man. The greatest, in fact. I'm not just using that word of my own. That's what Jesus said a little later on. Truly, Matthew 11, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. It's a stunning statement. Of all those born of women, I think Jesus accepting himself, himself as the exception, but among everybody else, no one greater, not one, not Abraham. I mean, think of it. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not anybody. John was literally the goat. <laughs> Can you think of a better witness to call? Can you think of a better witness to call to support your contention that Jesus is the son of the living God? See him for who he was. Third, he was a devoted follower. He was a devoted follower. So devoted, I, I, I love this one. So devoted that people in our day would call him weird. People in our day would call him 
religious. People in our day would refer to him as holier than thou. And they'd be right on every single count. Because John set himself apart in every way possible. Hear me on this. John set himself, I'm so challenged by this myself. John set himself, he would have been thought of as weird and holier than thou and and religious and all the other words that are associated with that that the, the world throws out from time to time. Because John set himself apart in every way possible so as to never ever compromise his devotion. Oh, God, help me. Literally. God, help us. He set himself apart so as to never, ever compromise his calling, God's calling on his life. Like, for instance, abstaining from wine and strong drink to avoid temptation. Luke 1.15. Or wearing camel hair and a leather belt to resist the creep of materialism. Have you ever wondered I think that's it. He, he, he dressed in such a way so as to resist, no matter what the cost to him personally, resist the creep of materialism. It affected them just like it affects now, just on a different scale. He ate locusts and wild honey to live simply and undistracted, doing everything he possibly could so as to never, ever compromise his calling, his devotion as a follower follower of the living God. In fact, as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, there in verse 23, as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, the wilderness, a place of spiritual barrenness, he made sure his life illustrated it. He made sure that his life illustrated the works that had been prepared for him before ordained, Ephesians 2.10, so that he might walk in them. Literally in this case. His life was one great big illustration of his devoted calling. It illustrated the wilderness and the call. He was devoted. A devoted follower. See him for who he was. Fourth, he was a courageous speaker. A courageous speaker. Bold. You might insert that word yourself, a bold speaker. Bold to speak the truth when others wouldn't. Same now. Bold to say it like it is no matter what. No matter what. No matter what relationship you might lose. No matter what friendship might take their ball and bat and depart from you. No matter what it might cost you in your job or your vocation. Like John was a courageous speaker. Like when he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. Or when he confronted Herod, the most powerful man in the land for marrying his brother's wife. Confronted him and condemned him for it. Knowing full well the consequences might be dire. And indeed they were. He spoke courageously. And last, he was a faithful witness. A significant prophet, a great man, a devoted follower, a courageous speaker, and a faithful, faithful witness. Remember verses 6 to 8 earlier in the chapter? Check them out there again. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John the Apostle is writing, he's referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness, ding, 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 to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And sure enough, he did. Verse 15, John bore witness about him. He did what he was sent to do, faithfully testifying to everyone that he possibly could, anyone and everyone who would give him an audience, whether a personal one or to the crowds. He was a faithful witness. See him for who he was in those respects. See him for who he was, and you won't have to be convinced to follow his example. You'll be inspired. And I trust that you are even as I speak. I've prayed that that would be the case. See him for who he was and you won't have to be convinced to follow his example. You'll be inspired. You'll be devoted yourself. You'll be courageous yourself. And probably a little weird. Probably so. So be it. Own it. Own it. Better to be weird for Jesus than just like the world. Way better. Better to be a fool for Christ than a tool for Satan. Be weird. Everybody else is, for crying out loud, for a lot lesser reasons, that's for sure. Be devoted. See who John was. Second, as an example worth following, hear what John said. See who John was and hear what John said, not that he used a lot of words, like John the Baptist reminds me of my dad in some respect. If you'll notice here, as we work our way through these verses, that John started his response with five words, then his second response, three words, then his third response, one word, one word. I love that. A man of few words, but man, did he pack a big punch. Man, did he choose them wisely, conveying a ton of information in the course of it. Hear what John said, starting with about who he wasn't. Hear what John said about who he wasn't. Who he wasn't. John gave three different denials here that speak volumes about his identity. Speaking volumes, it's possible to speak volumes about who you are by saying who you are not. And this is exhibit A for it. Not, not only that, but his responses, his denials here speak volumes about his aversion to the schemes of man. In this case, the Jews. Like when they asked him in verse 19, who are you? And he said in verse 20, I am not the Christ, not the Messiah. That's the first denial that we find here about who he wasn't. Not the Messiah. Not the Messiah. In no uncertain terms. You see, with all the attention that he was getting and all the people who were following him, he knew what these priests and Levites were getting at. He knew. They wanted to know if he was the anointed one. They wanted to know if he was the appointed one. Remember? They wanted to know if he was the promised 
one. They wanted to know if he was the one who would deliver them from the oppression of Rome and reestablish the Davidic kingdom, reestablish the nation like in the glory days of old. Who are you? Are you the one? That's what they were asking. That's what they were getting at. All of which he denied in no uncertain terms. No uncertain terms. You see, he may be, he may be a worthy example to follow, but he's not the ultimate one. He may be faithful, but he's not the one in whom we put our faith. Don't get the distinction mixed up. Worthy, but not the ultimate example. Hear what John said about who he wasn't then. Second, in verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Makes me wonder, like, did they have this prepared ahead of time, or were they just kind of pulling them, shooting from the hip sort of thing. I think it was somewhat ahead of time because they would have been well, well versed in these sorts of things. What then? Are you Elijah? In other words, are you the prophet who, who preached like Elijah 900 years earlier and was taken up to heaven in a chariot? Like, you know, the one who didn't die? Are you, are you him come back to earth? Are you? Are you? And John said, I am not his second denial i'm not elijah i'm not elijah but here's the thing you can't fault them for asking oh it's so easy for us to you know play armchair quarterback on this one pun intended on this day <laughs> super easy for us to play armchair quarterback on this and be like what in the world were they thinking i mean they they got to be like out of their minds somehow. Where, where are they getting this stuff? Think again because not only did John preach like Elijah, but he looked like Elijah. They would have known this. He too, the Bible says, referring to Elijah, he too wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. 2 Kings 1.8. They would have known that. And so we've got a guy in front of us who's, who's preaching like Elijah preached. He's, he's preaching repentance like Elijah preached. And he's, he looks like the guy from 900 years ago who was taken up to heaven in a chariot. So maybe he's the guy. Maybe he's the one. And several hundred years after Elijah, about 435 B.C., Malachi prophesied that he would return someday, Elijah would return someday, and do the very things John the Baptist was doing. It's found in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God is speaking here, and he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, he would bring a renewed, this, this Elijah, he would bring a renewed sense of righteousness, and it would bear fruit at the most fundamental level of society, the family, the family. Turning fathers back to their kids and kids to their Fathers. So no wonder they're asking, well, what then? Are, are you Elijah? And, and then, 400 years after that, about 6 BC, 
The angel told Zechariah, once again, John's dad, the angel told Zechariah the very same thing about him. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He said, and he, this is the angel speaking, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord God, and he will go before him, before the Lord, here it is, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and he adds something here, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, the righteous, just could even be capitalized here, turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And sure enough, John was doing it. He did it. His preaching of repentance turned people's hearts to the Lord, the wisdom of the just, the Lord God. So it's no wonder they asked him, are you Elijah? No wonder. But once again, John said, no, no. Knowing full well he wasn't literally Elijah, and perhaps not realizing at that point that he was Elijah's fulfillment. Like Jesus said later on in Matthew eleven thirteen, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. He is Elijah, John the Baptist, who is to come. He's not literally Elijah, the, the very one taken up into heaven in the chariot, but he's the one that God had in mind when Malachi prophesied and the angel after him. But at this point, the Jews weren't really interested in a spiritual fulfillment, a metaphorical fulfillment. They just wanted to avoid the destruction of their land that God had warned them about through Malachi. They just wanted to avoid that at all costs. And so they were almost intent. Well, what then? Are you Elijah? And John wasn't having any part of it. I'm not. I'm not. It's the second denial about who he wasn't. The third was his denial of their insinuation that he was the prophet. The prophet. Second part of verse 21. Are you the prophet? Pulling that card out, playing that card. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's something here that we haven't seen or figured out. And, once again, reducing his answer from five words to three words, now to one word, he answered, no. I'm not the prophet. Not the prophet. Not the Messiah, not Elijah, not the prophet, the prophet referring to the one Moses spoke of back in Deuteronomy 18. Maybe you've noticed it in your Bible reading from time to time. I hope you have. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you. Moses is speaking to the Israelites of old. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you, you shall listen. Then God turns to Moses and he reiterates it. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak 
to them all that I command him. And so they believed a prophet like Moses would come. The people in John the Baptist's day, they believed that a prophet like Moses would come, and rightly so. But most of them missed the fact that he would be different than, or most of them thought that he would be different than the Messiah. Most people missed the fact that the prophet and the Messiah would be one and the same. It's the very testimony that the apostle Peter gives in Acts chapter 3 and Stephen after him in Acts chapter 7. Both of them implying that Jesus is the prophet, the one that Moses prophesied back in Deuteronomy. Jesus is the fulfillment. So, of course, John said no. Of course he said no. Three denials that speak volumes about who John wasn't. And it's important that we hear them. Because once again, though he's a worthy example, he's not the ultimate one. On the other hand, it's also important that we hear what John said about who he was, who he wasn't, and who he was. Look at verse 22 in that respect. So they said to him after his denials, who are you? You can almost start to hear the desperation in their voice. The, the thought of going back to their leaders, the mucky mucks, the Sanhedrin most likely, and, and saying, oh, we, we got nothing. We, we heard nothing. Like, and they probably feared they would have been DQ'd from their priestly duties or whatever. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40, verse 3, a prophecy first made to the Israelites of old. Hear me on this. You need to understand this background. It was a prophecy, Isaiah 40, verse 3, that was first made to the Israelites of old to say that after their exile in Babylon in 586 B.C., God would return to them. After that, 70 years later, God would return to them and reveal his glory. And they, he would do so in Jerusalem. They would return to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon, and God would return to them in Jerusalem after their exile in Babylon. No longer... Isaiah was saying here, no longer would they be cast down in the bondage of captivity. No longer would God be distant but near. So get ready. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Th that was Isaiah's prophecy. He, he says, just listen to this, verse 3 through 5, a voice cries, Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You can envision what they would have been thinking, like, okay, he says we're going to go into exile far to the east, to, to Babylon someday, and, and then eventually there's going to be a voice that says, prepare a way from Babylon back to Israel. 
Make straight in the desert. It's what separates the two. In the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Goodness, that gives me chills. I can imagine what it would have done for them in that day. And then in the days after, that was Isaiah's prophecy, but it didn't really happen. Not fully, not the way that they anticipated. And John the Baptist shows up 750 years later to say, I'm the real voice. That Isaiah spoke of, I'm, I'm the one. I'm the real voice in the wilderness that Isaiah was talking about and the real coming of God is nearer than ever. Nearer than ever. But the way to make straight, this is what John was saying, this is what he's implying in all of this, but the way to make straight isn't the terrain and the landscape between Babylon and, and Israel. The, the rough places to be leveled that Isaiah spoke of aren't the mountains and the valleys. No, no, no. It's your heart. It's your heart. That, that's what would coincide with the preaching of repentance that he had been offering up until this point in time. It's your heart. Make straight the way of the Lord into your heart. Don't just hear John the Baptist then speaking this. Hear me now speaking this. Make straight the way of the Lord into your heart. Make straight the way of the Lord into your family. Make straight the way of the Lord into your community. Make straight the way of the Lord into your nation. Make straight the way of the Lord into the world. That's what he was getting at here when he says, I'm the voice. I'm not the Messiah, but I'm the one preparing the way for him. I'm the voice in the wilderness saying, get ready and get right. Get ready and get right. And his voice remains. Whether you have yet to receive Christ for the first time, or you're waiting for his return the second time. Repent and believe. Get ready and get right. Remove the barriers, the things in your life that distract you, the things in, in your life that drag you down. Repent and believe and make straight the way of the Lord today. It's what he said, John the Baptist and what he's saying. And then third, hear what John said about who's most important. Who he wasn't, who he was, and who's most important. Verse 24. Now they have been, this little parenthesis here, this little sidebar, this little statement, once again, conveying an encyclopedia worth of information. Now they had been sent, these priests and Levites had been sent from the Pharisees. By the way, priests and Levites sometimes used interchangeably in the scriptures, referring to one and the same. Technically, they would have been different. Priests would have been just the normal people who two weeks out of the year, twice a year, would have come to the temple and they would have overseen the worship and overseen the, 
the offering of the sacrifices. Meanwhile, the Levites would have been those, in, at least in first century, would have been those who were taking care of everything behind the scenes in the temple, and they would have been there full time. So whether it's a reference to one and the same, they were kind of just one, two ways referring to the same people, or whether technically referring to two different people, can't be sure. But nonetheless, here, they were Pharisees, which means, I don't know how else to say this, they were negative nitpickers. That's, that's what the Apostle John is getting across here. They were very knowledgeable nitpickers, don't get me wrong, very knowledgeable nitpickers, but nitpickers nonetheless. That's the idea. As another parentheses of the parentheses, don't be a negative nitpicker in any aspect of your life, and certainly not in our family, the family of God. They were negative nitpickers, these Pharisees. Verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, they, they relist them from their questions, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, on what authority are you doing all of this? Like, those three are the only ones to usher in a new age, according to the scriptures, at least in how they were thinking of the scriptures. Those three are the only ones to bring something, you know, earth-shattering about, world-changing about. They're the only ones to make things right and renew the kingdom. Who are you? Who are you? John answered them, verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you, the word but there indicating that his statement, I baptize with water, is meant to convey that what I'm doing is not unimportant. It is significant for sure. He's not minimizing what he's been doing. He's not minimizing his preaching of repentance and so on. And, and, and urging people to get baptized to show their repentance and their preparation. He's not minimizing that. That's what the word but that immediately follows that phrase indicates. That's just simple grammar. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then John the apostle adds, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Bethany, somewhere on the east side of the Jordan River, just outside of Israel proper in the day. Remember that. In the meantime, John asks, who am I? Rhetorically, nobody. Nobody. The Apostle John's recording these, and they're, they're asking, like, who are you? Are you these? And John says, I'm nobody. Oh, sure, sure. I baptize with water. I'm urging people to repent of their sins and, and get ready for the Messiah and, and get baptized to, to show it for sure, for sure. I, I'm, I'm symbolizing in this baptism, I'm symbolizing a return from the exile of sin by telling people to come clean before they cross the Jordan and re-enter the land, just like the Israelites of old. Who loved that? Yes, yes. 
And what I'm doing and what I'm saying is, is laden with immense imagery and symbolism that is of the utmost importance to prepare the way. It's not unimportant, but that's nothing compared to the one who's coming on the way to be the way. That's nothing compared to who's coming. All that I'm doing is nothing compared to the one who will baptize for real. That we will find in the following paragraphs in the weeks to come. Nothing compared to the one who will actually forgive sins. Nothing compared to the one who will rule and reign. He may come after me, but he's way more important than me. The first in this example means nothing, John the Baptist said. He's way more important to me, so much so, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal. I'm not even worthy to do the most menial task and the lowliest task of the lowest servant in any Jewish household of the day. Not with, not with Jesus, not with the one who's coming after me. I may be doing some things that are important, but it's nothing compared to the one who's coming. John's response wasn't meant to diminish what he was doing, but elevate the one who was more important. Hear that. Hear that. Hear what John said about who's most important. Hear how he compares himself to Jesus. Because far more important than any voice that proclaims him is the one who's proclaimed. Follow that example. And then last, do what John did. Bringing all this together, do what John did. See who John the Baptist was, hear what he said, and do what he did, as in witness clearly. Really quick and I'll be done. Witness clearly. John left no doubt in people's minds as to what he was saying. Like just zero. Make sure that you're the same. Especially about the gospel, especially when you're talking about the things of God, especially when you're talking about things eternal, things most important. Make sure that you leave no doubt as to what you're saying. Make sure people know who Jesus is and where they stand in relation to him. Witness clearly. Do what John did. Second, witness boldly. Witness boldly. Boldly by calling sin, sin. Goodness, that's one of the biggest ways that we can witness boldly in our day. If it's wrong, call it wrong. Witness boldly by warning people of judgment. Witness boldly by urging people to repent. These aren't easy things to say. These aren't easy things to communicate to people. And the more you love someone, the harder it is to communicate. The more personal it is, the harder it is to communicate. But communicate it, we must. Witness boldly, we must. Otherwise, how will they ever know? How will they ever know the truth? Urge them to repent. That's what John the Baptist did. He witnessed boldly. Be like John. And then last but not least, witness humbly. Witness humbly. 
As in speak the truth and stand firm in your convictions. But oh, do it humbly. Do it meekly. Honestly, I don't think that most of us have a problem with that. Of witnessing humbly. Speaking these things to people with a yearning in our heart and soul. But there's probably a few who, who kind of have the feeling like I'm just going to say it and I don't really care and, and let the chips fall where they may. Oh, don't do that. Be meek about what you're saying. Power under control. The power of the word of God under control. And witness humbly, not to win an argument, but to, but to win a soul. Witness with a yearning in, in your heart for the soul of those who are listening that, oh, in some way, shape, or form, God may plant a seed that somebody else might water, or maybe you're watering the seed that's previously been planted, and the Lord, by his act in their soul, would cause them to spring up to salvation. Spring up, oh well. Witness humbly with a constant recognition that you were there once lost and hopeless, and were it not for the grace of God, you still would be. You still would be. Witness clearly, witness boldly, and witness humbly. Just like John. He's an example worth following. Let's pray. Father, spur us on. Spur us on in these things. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Inspire us to be devoted, Lord. Give us courage. Oh, we need it. Give us courage. Move us to speak. To be a voice for you in our day. Just like John was in his. And God, find us faithful, will you? Faithful to humbly testify of your blessing. Clearly witness to your goodness. Boldly stand for your truth. Find us faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand, let's worship the Lord.